Rogers. But a sewer. A rat-infested sewer. Now, I may drink just a little bit too much and uh, play with the girls a little bit and steal a little bit. But you're out of your goddamn mind if you think I'm going to kill General Patton. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McCoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's a degree absolute. Glenn. Chris. You're joining us this week, as every week, from your remote mountain stronghold. And I was just thinking back to my first time visiting there. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Do you remember we had a bit of a, a bit of an altercation? You know, a rare wrinkle in our usually smooth-like polyester friendship. Do you remember this? I don't, actually. I, I don't know why I was flashing back to this so powerfully today, but I kept walking around your, your beautiful A-frame, and I couldn't get a cell signal, couldn't get any reception. I was just pacing the corners, both sides of the deck, deck on both sides, people. Mm-hmm. And I was really getting on your nerves. Do you remember what you finally said to me, Glenn? No. What's the quote from the movie you're going to use here, Chris? <laughs> you, uh, you snatched my phone right out of my hands, and you said, I will personally go and find a signal for you. Do you hear that, sir? I will find every goddamn bar, and when I do, you have my assurance that I will come right back here and shove in each and every one of them right up your sweet red commie ass. There it is. There it is. Ah, yes. I remember that. I have seen this film before (laughs) as a toe-headed youth. We'll get to that, though. That's a really good George C. Scott impression. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) By the the, the sliding scale of this show, it ain't bad. Yeah, and you know, the (laughs) listeners can already tell this is going to be such a higher energy episode than the last two. Sorry for that, listeners. Listen, that that, uh, Prisoner of the Remake wore us down, but I am up for talking about this. Not because the movie's any good, but because the Patty McGee performance we get here... It is incredibly weird. It is incredibly mannered. It's just exactly what you want. There's not enough of it, no. but what we get is great. I'm so up for talking about it. He checks out at minute 37. Yeah. And there's an hour 15 left, but we have been so well served by minute 37 that the um, the halo lingers. Absolutely. Through the remainder and of the speaking film. of actors who can be incredibly weird and <laughs> mannered, we have a guest, Chris. That you should introduce. That's right, Glenn. Our guest today is a film critic of sterling experience who has just recently published a book examining the long and eclectic filmography of a singularly idiosyncratic actor. You can see why we had to have him on. A former editor for the AV Club, Uproxx, and The Dissolve, where I was honored to contribute for about a year and a half until that site's abrupt and still heartbreaking demise. In 2015, I still feel the wound. He is one of the two principals of The Reveal, a daily film newsletter that I endorse without reservation. And... Most recently, the author of an insightful and very entertaining examination of the last 40 years of American cinema as reflected in the career of one Nicolas Cage. The book is Age of Cage, The Man 
is Keith Phipps. Welcome, Keith, to a degree absolute. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is a, uh, a, a it's a delight to be here to talk about well this film and Patrick you know, Patrick McGowan in general, I guess. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, well, I, I think this I just set up the premise of this podcast and this episode, so <laughs> <laughs> quite redundantly. So I'll let you carry on from here. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if we'd been smart enough to uh, devote a podcast to, say, Nicolas Cage, you know, we could have dined out on this for years, but Patty McGee did not work as prolifically Mm-mm. as Nick Cage did um, for many reasons. Yep. He said no to things, apparently. <laughs> Keith does kind of talk in the later chapters, you know, about Cage's increasing difficulty fitting in in the increasingly superhero-obsessed latter decade of uh, cinema and where a lot of younger viewers know him more as a, perhaps as a as a gif or a, a meme than as an actor even though he you know he had some well publicized money problems and things like he didn't have behavioral problems um the kind of things that would would make you unwelcome on movie sets keith you know better than either of us obviously but he got through that pretty early in his career right That's, yeah it seems like was he was someone you did not necessarily want to be on the set with like around moonstruck era uh when he when he seemed very kind of un, uh, torn apart by doing a movie as as warm-hearted and and not punk as as moonstruck <laughs> and was uh, quite ill behaved on the set but after that like i didn't talk to that many people he worked with um, after, you know, after a certain point, like the, the more, you know, the, it gets harder to track down people. <laughs> it's easier to track down some directors than say Martin Scorsese. Martha sure. Coolidge will tell you, will pick, answer your emails. Scorsese probably <laughs> won't. But, uh, the, the line on him is always like super professional shows up, knows his lines, totally prepared, you know, a delight to work with. So that's, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the impression I, I, you know, you hear it enough and it seems probably true. So Keith, what's your angle on the book? What was your take? How did you how did you crack uh, this thing? What's the through line that you? What is the thesis that you were arguing? I guess I would say about Nicolas Cage. Oh gosh, I guess. Well, I mean, there's, it's twofold, and, and one is that obviously, you know, if you're going to spend a year of your life watching one uh, actor's films, mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage will, will is a fine person to do that with. Yeah. You're not going to be bored that often. There are a couple of boring titles in there here and there, but it's just like he's never really been an easy fit for whatever was going on in Hollywood at any given time. Mm-hmm. He, even like his action years is kind of like, isn't it, you know, I remember, was, I think at the time, and it's still kind of when you watch this movie, this is still kind of the vibe you get from it. It's like, isn't it crazy that Nicolas Cage is doing an action movie? <laughs> you know, this is not something you expect to see Nicolas Cage in. But, you know, just by being kind of a an odd fit and yet also being a huge star, uh, you know, fairly quickly becomes an, a name actor. Uh, I think it's an interesting way to look at the last 40 years of, of, of film history. And, you know, you kind of talk about the later chapters where he has kind of lost its footing for, for you know, I, th- I believe, I think we're, we're in kind of a cage of right now. I, I certainly hope so, mm-hmm. um, given his recent work. But but um, he lost his footing because there wasn't really a franchise that he could, could hold himself to in some ways. Like National Treasure was, those were both huge hits, but as one of the producers points out, like the, there was a reluctance for, from Disney to do more because it's how do you turn this into a theme park? You know, I, a theme park ride. How do you turn it into? How do you, how yeah. can it be more than just a big successful movie? Which I think is a pretty telling comment on on where movies went over the, like the last fifteen, twenty years. Yeah. You also point out the irony of him being kind of left out of the all superheroes all the time era now for a guy who you know famously was was almost Superman with mm-hmm. Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen those Ghost Rider movies, but it sounds like they're pretty non-essential parts of his oeuvre. But certainly a guy who who has wanted to or has been been ready for comic books to get the kind of 
respectability that they have now for a long time and has not really benefited from this. Yeah, it's it's well, and also his his, his stage name comes from Luke Cage, a comic book character. Um, right. it, it's funny. I went to talk to um, my daughter's fifth grade class when the book came out because you know we were, you know that was cool. It was nice to be asked to do that. Yeah. And the, the one I assumed everyone would, if they knew him at all, it would be from National Treasure. And it's really Ghost Rider. It's like these are like kids are like Marvel completists and they've seen the Ghost Rider films, you know, Uh, and they're not great. I mean, it really was like kind of like this is what's left for you, Nicolas Cage, be Ghost Rider, because after the Superman film didn't work. That's it's, it's a really interesting thought experiment to think about if he had made that movie, both for his career, but also like for superhero movies in general, whether it was a huge success or a failure, it would have been like this weird auteur Superman film yeah. with a very specific, and I thought kind of interesting take on, on Superman as kind of the ultimate outsider champion, you know, uh, d- defender of, of the of the underdog, a defender of weirdos and bullied people. You know, it was kind of his cages, how he talked about the character going in and connected to his own like incidents being bullied as a kid. And it's like, you know, that, yeah. I would have liked to have seen that movie. I think that would have been been interesting. You, you know, those photos that kind of make the made the rounds of the costume test and you know, people kind of had a laugh. But, you know, these are, I don't know, could have been, could have been interesting. I'm not a big fan, and I don't think you are either, Glenn, of the, the long-haired uh, 90s <laughs> Superman. Uh, <laughs> and it definitely would have been based on that, it looked like. But, you know, beyond that, I think there's some interesting ideas at play there. Well, when he was just starting out, he had a good solid chunk when he would not have had to have any CGI or padding on the suit because, man... Mm-hmm. Boy in Blue, uh, that is a uh, video cover that I remember walking <laughs> past at the video store wow. and being, uh, oof, boy. <laughs> boy, boy uh, in Blue. Boy in Blue gets a, a star and a half in Keith's back of the book, Cage Filmography. It's not great. It is not a great <laughs> film. <laughs> but but it is, as for, for, for Nicolas Cage Beefcake, this is, that's, that's you know, that and Valley Girl. Valley you know, Girl, those uh, Birdie uh, as well. Birdie, yeah, true. It's, I mean, it's just such a sad movie. I don't think of it as as uh, a beef, the beefcakiness yeah. <laughs> kind of falls by the wayside. But yeah, yeah. Uh, that too. Yeah, the the number of films that I have noted that I need to still see just just reading reading this book. Um, but yeah, Birdie is on the list. Uh, but then again, good. so is so is Lee, which is not by, by your account <laughs> very Santa, good. Santa so. Lee is such a, it's a trip, man. That is a, like that was, um, I saw it on VHS when it came out. It's like, this is one of the stranger things I saw. It's actually a pretty good New Orleans movie. Like you get Bourbon Street, but kind of from a different angle, like different lighting, different, like not, not quite the cliches that you're expecting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good time. But yeah, Birdie is one, I don't think I had actually seen it until I wrote this book, and I was and and I was kind of often an Alan Parker skeptic, but that's that's, a, that's really quite a good good film. Yeah, well, uh, Vampire's Kiss was a first date movie for me, and we <laughs> didn't make it to a second date because we disagreed about that film so much. Because every choice he makes, I'm not sure he's directed in that movie at all. I, it just seems like he is making gut checks uh, with every scene, and it's a lot of fun, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think it. there are a lot of restraints on that performance. Yeah. No, uh, and it's part of part of why I love the film. I got to see that projected as uh, at the Wisconsin Film Festival. Uh, w- w- you know where I went with the with the book, which was which was great. It was fun to see it with the audience. But I think, you know, 
I, I like that film as a film, though. It's it's kind of like you know, we didn't have the term toxic toxic masculinity when it was made, but it's, it's really kind of in in, in in or I don't I'm sure white privilege is floating around the floating around there somewhere. But uh, uh, it's certainly an interesting examination of, of those different trends as they appeared in, in the late '80s. Yeah, it's like it kind of uh, tees up American Psycho in a way. It's kind of mm-hmm. like hitting some of those same beats. Um, but speaking of way out there performances and actors who do them, Chris, you want to kick us off? Why don't I? I'll permit myself one last tangent and say that I do have a have a, a date. The first date that I ever drove to after getting my driver's license was taking Amy Terman to see Honeymoon in Vegas okay. in, uh, in 1992. That movie That's came a good out like date movie, like the week after it's I got been my essential license. Date movie. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember so little of it, but again, uh, by Keith's account, it's it's pretty good. So I should probably look at it. Mm-hmm. I think I was just very nervous. Certainly, the first time I, I drove a, a girl anywhere that I had invited to accompany me to a place, and the reason that I am I am sharing so freely my romantic past is obviously that in 1966, Patrick McGowan started the long-running TV <laughs> spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new show. A new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious inescapable village where each and every single resident, no, not actually every single resident, but many residents are referred to only by their number. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time and innately and unambiguously and lava-lampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, bitch. And ten years later... And I'm, I'm going to say they were not particularly hard years because, uh, you know, Patty McGee, was a, he was starring in and directing Columbo's. He had a big fat villain role in Silver Streak, uh-huh. if, which was a, a big, big hit. He was working and um, hard on the heels of that. Here he was again in 1978's December release, Brass Target. We are in the, the year of the dad movie. Uh-huh. The number one film, having newly just just flown into the top ten of all time domestic, has Top Gun Maverick. It's a dad film, and you know we always uh, do our due diligence and get an actual dad to uh, come on when we're when we're talking uh, dad films. Since neither Glenn nor I qualify, that's what we do here on the private, personal, by hand, tangent tolerant, but properly punctuated punch card driven podcast, where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series, The Prisoner, and related documents. And we, oh, you gotta, Glenn. You pushed me into it, but you 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 haven't. I'm not sure that Keith has all of the the facts. We here. can get we can we can fill them in as we go. We'll do it on the fly. We'll do it live. Okay, but I mean Keith is uh, he's using a four star rating system in Age of Cage to evaluate the films of Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. But on our show, he's going to grade me according to the metric system, hmm. wherein <laughs> the, the the worst score is one and the best score is six. Okay, so what we're doing there, Keith, the okay. prisoner six is the highest. Got team. it, got okay. it. Good, I, good, yeah, good. I get it. Right, so we're doing an, an extended, uh, some would say bloated, homage <laughs> to... <laughs> tomato, uh, tomato. Yes, to the, the uh, quote that we play at the beginning of, of every show from the pilot of The Prisoner where uh, an indignant uh, Patrick McGowan says that he will not be this, 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 or this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you're going to gonna rate me on an... Instance by instance basis. I'm going to have like a rolling score with each one of my my individual homages. You're going to you're going to be great. Glenn will go first, so you'll see. Right. And Keith, your okay. criteria on how to grade this will be your own. Uh, mine is pithiness <laughs> and relevance, but you can okay. pick anything uh, you want to as a, as a criteria. So okay, I feel okay. I feel prepared for this. <laughs> Good. You look a little more tired than you did a moment ago, Keith. <laughs> I think it's just the angle. There we go. Bright bright eyed. There we go. Certainly, certainly not the activity. All right. So we 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 take. 
uh, unclassifiable, unforgettable dubbing series and related documents, and we we push it uh-huh. like two of General George S. Patton's colonels, one played by former 60s TV spy Robert Vaughn and one played by future Gilmore guy Edward Herman, a Washington, D.C. native, Glenn. Did you know who made his professional stage debut here at Arena Stage? Okay. Uh, which is uh, where I got my second Pfizer shot last year. That was my inoculation site. So uh, I've, I've also seen a lot of plays there. Mm-hmm. Um, like the two, those two colonels pushing together the twin beds of their rented lodging house. Don't know if that's actually where they're quartered or if that's their... No, I think that is their clandestine getaway spot because we joined them in a second lodging house later where they have once again pushed the twin beds together. So we, we push it like that. All right, so it's not pithy uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but oh man, we're going to talk I, about that scene and others, I could have done a pithy version. Including, uh, uh, including them. Uh, yeah, there is a big um, 1950s Batman and Robin vibe going on there where you push the beds <laughs> together. Yep, absolutely. So I'm going to give that... I'm going to take a point off because it was it did go on a bit, and then we got that tangent uh, about the written stage. So I'm going to say I'm going to give that a five out of six, Chris. Thank you, my friend. I'm also I I just want to I don't want to like start out at the highest possible one, so I'll do five out of six too. But I did enjoy the tangent, so I think I think the tangent actually is going to be you know part of part of what is elevating the score there. So more more tangents, I say. Okay, so Thank you, score? Keith. I guess we're at odds here. I guess in terms of our our, our mm-hmm. uh, grading system. And, yes, and yes. I hope that's what, what, is the, what is the number grade? Oh, five. Let's do five. Five out of six. Okay. All right. Feeling good. Feeling good. Thank you, Keith. Um, We file it like a bunch of papers that George Kennedy's George Patton complains comprises paper army, analyze supply procedures, do historical studies. It's all a bunch of crap. If Roosevelt were alive, he never would have done this to me. So I hired a couple Nazis to help me run the military government. Who else knew how to do it? We file it like that. All right, Chris, that's... uh... I hesitate to do this because you always get the uh, the military movies that we do, and there's always lots of filing and lots of indexing in those films. So this is a gimme, but that was a very good uh, George Kennedy. That's a six out of six for me. Yeah, same. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Same. I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. That was actually my representative, Kevin McCarthy. So we hired a couple Nazis to help run the government. Yeah, there's some. That's exposition right there. That is some solid yes, exposition sorry. right there. We stamp it. Like the U.S. Army dossiers of Colonel Mike McCauley, Colonel Frank Stewart, Colonel Walter Gilchrist, Colonel Donald Rogers, and tragically, General George Patton being stamped deceased. All right, fine. Six out of six. I mean, these, you're, you're knocking it out of the park here, Chris. Put the bunny back in the box. I'll just, I'll just go along. Yeah, six out of six. That sounds good. Well, what is that? What is that? What is it? Oh, no, not the beast! Not the beast! Ah! Oh, my eyes! My eyes! Like the prisoner itself, this movie is just lousy with colonels. <laughs> <laughs> we have a real paucity of lieutenants and more junior officers here. All right, you're gonna have to forgive me here because I had to do this phonetically because this bare bones DVD from which I I ripped your your QuickTime file that you both watched, not even subtitles on this so really Mm. really working working hard we index it like the guest register of the hotel dune in hoffenstrasse Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh where the poor luckless journalist i think peter shelley will meet his demise where his drinking buddy is manhandling a waitress while boasting that he has survived world war ii and three marriages and where the only black person in this film is playing the piano we index it like the guest register of the hotel. Yeah, that's if I was thinking to myself, if I was doing it this week, that's what I would have done. Um, five out of six. 
Ryan's going to defer to Glenn because he, he knows the system more than better than I do. But it's my system. Have your own system. Keith, you, you, no, you need to stand up for, uh, you, you, you need to, the way that uh, Nicolas Cage tries to stand up, you know, for, for films like Leaving Las Vegas, Keith. It, all right. You know what? I thought it was the best. Six out of six. Let's do it. I ain't no freaking monument to justice. I lost my hand. I lost my bride. Johnny has his hand. Johnny has his bride. You want me to take my heartbreak, put it away and forget? Thank you. Thank you. I'm saying Glenn can be a little bit tyrannical with his, <laughs> uh, you know, insistence on pithiness, his insistence that it has to have some some direct connection to the particular movie we're talking about this week. Well, so far, you are you are following in that footsteps. You are you are you are doing it. See, when I when I conform mm-hmm. to your mm-hmm. your rigid mm-hmm. idea, I, I benefit. I, okay. <laughs> oh, I'm, see, I'm seeing now this is a Warner Archives DVD release so it's one of those films that was not quite not enough demand to get it like a full on pressing it's like the on demand service uh, which I'm a big fan of mm-hmm. uh, but I wouldn't hold that against it but that it is it is interesting and when you put the DVD in and I and I spared you guys this by just sending you a quick time file but the home screen that comes up it's not even like a one sheet of the film or maybe a cover of the paperback of the Frederick Nolan novel the Algonquin the Algonquin Project terrible title yeah, boy, I'm, I'm picturing Dorothy Parker mm-hmm. and... Uh, <laughs> Take that, Robert Benchley. You put in the DVD, and you are greeted by a picture of the DVD cover. <laughs> so lame. <laughs> it's so sad. Uh, all right, where are we? Brief it. We brief it like 16-year-old Colonel Robert Dawson, played by 32-year-old actor Bruce Davison, telling OSS Major Joe DeLuca, played by 49-year-old actor and prolific writer and director John Cassavetes, that someone has duplicated a covert operation he carried out to stop and raid a Nazi train carrying... I'm quoting here, let me say, the Kraut's whole war room, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. using his mission plan to kill 59 American GIs and steal the quarter billion dollars in Nazi gold found in an abandoned salt mine that they were escorting to Frankfurt. We brief it like 16-year-old Colonel Robert Dawson briefing major children. Yeah, again, you you got a military film, so you already got briefing and debriefing already covered. It's like it's it's handed to you, Chris. It's handed to you, so I got to take up one Okay, point. Glenn, but you did it when we had a legal thriller. That's true. That's true. And you could not even be bothered to look up the name of a document that a lawyer might file yeah, in I a think courtroom. I got that right, though. I think I did. Five out of six. Yeah, because Linda was being nice to you, but you, you, you could have actually looked up the name of an actual document. You could have just said, like, you file it like a thing in a, in a courtroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very lazy. Yep, affidavit. Five, five to six. Five to six. <laughs> okay, good. Retroactively. <laughs> yeah, I think five out of six. I, I'm gonna. I, I will. I, I will go with Glenn on on, on this one. Oh, Chris, we got to pay attention. Keith already sounds uh, tired. <laughs> so tired. What do you you think I'm tired? I tell you, it's just a lighting on this Zoom. I'm. I'm just. You know. I, I didn't tell Keith like... that we that we imbibe during this. Oh, prolonged yeah. exercise. I've got a, I've got a bubbly. Mm-hmm. That I'll have to do, I guess. With bubbles. Well, I usually, you know, I usually have a beer when we podcast. Uh, but I, you know, it's my first time on this podcast. So I didn't know the rules, so I came, up, I came with a non-alcoholic beverage. I, I should have, uh, I should have made you feel welcome. I should have offered you something, Keith, and I should have included <laughs> in in your introduction that you're also one of the hosts of the Next Picture Show. The, That's right. The fine, fine, awesome. film spotting adjacent podcast, the Next Picture Show with. Yes, co-starring in alphabetical order, Genevieve Kosky, Tasha Robinson, and Scott Tobias, wonderful people, and fine critics all, the next picture show. Oh boy, speaking of bubbles, um, we debrief it. Like Patty McGee's Colonel McCauley, who I, I think we may agree that apart from his role in the conspiracy to steal the gold and assassinate General Passion, General General Passion. That's <laughs> <laughs> his general level of passion that I feel for this movie. Yes. Uh, apart from his role in the conspiracy to steal the gold and assassinate General Patton, 
separate from that. Seems to have just gone a little bit Colonel Kurtz. Can we agree? Um, mm-hmm. We debrief it like him preparing to enjoy a bath drawn for him by a Swiss prostitute with bubbles. With bubbles. Immediately prior to being garroted. Right. Garroted, garroted. We get the closest we're ever going to get to a Patty McGee striptease in, in, that, uh, in that scene. And <laughs> I couldn't look away. And I didn't want to. Uh, five out of six, Chris. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Okay. You see what I mean? You sound tired. This isn't about looking tired, but like, how much are we grading here? How many things do we go through? Uh, maybe I'll. Oh, you know what? I didn't like that one. Two out of six. Sorry. See, I like. So okay. This is it. Yeah. Mm, bringing it. Bringing it. Keith does not like gratuitous boobs in a PG-rated <laughs> film from the late seventies. Um, it is. It is incredible what PG used to mean versus yeah, what right. it means now. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this is the only way that Patty McGee will. Uh, he he's really like a precursor to the the '80s uh, slasher flick, and that like he will he will agree to an almost sex scene if the character's lechery is immediately punished by violent death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's his thing. It's his Catholic. That's the Catholic coming out. Finally, we number it like a box office chart, documenting this film's position as the 13th highest-grossing film of. 1978, just behind the Philip Kaufman remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which I still haven't seen, which I, I keep hearing is so great. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, four to six. There's so many numbers things you could have done, and you I went know. with like the box office. That's very meta. You're metagaming. Yeah. Uh, but four to six, mm-hmm. solid. Mm-hmm. Still all above the uh, the rover cutoff. I'm going to say five out of six because I am intrigued by the 13th, it, the placement of being 13th, which seems quite high. You know, this is a film, honestly, I had not really heard of until I yeah. asked to be on this podcast. So I'm always fascinated by these things that were, you know, successes in their time, but seemingly instantly forgotten um, as, as this. The, the Avatar was. effect. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I guess, you know, but I mean, Avatar is coming back. I mean, I, but yeah, I have a feeling there's like a whole, there's probably a generation. I, mean, I never forgot about it, but. Yeah, I was not, you know, I think it's a generation that grew up on Avatar that, that's probably really going to be there for the sequels, but we'll see. See, I'm just, uh, like, I'm I'm just afraid, like, this is, this is going to be, Cameron is, what, he's almost 70 now? Like, mm-hmm. this is how he's going to end his career, and, and even even me. I am his court-appointed defender in every instance, but uh, I don't necessarily want four more. Are we sidetracking? Are we sidetracking we a little bit? Because, yeah, because I, like, I, when I saw Avatar, I, I thought... Oh boy, no one's gonna like that. <laughs> you know, I thought I really felt like this is this is a kind of a stinker from him, you know. And it's like, um, um, and of course, it was the most literally the most successful film of all time uh, after that. Um, but you're right. I mean, I'm I'm am enough of a Cameron fan that I'm already annoyed that he takes so long between films, and yeah. then, and then like to is this really the rest of your career? I, I guess I don't right. know. He wasn't you know. even diving to the bottom of the ocean this time. Mm-hmm. Right. He's just been working on more avatars. I will I will accept a twelve year gap when you are inventing a submarine that can withstand the pressure <laughs> at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, and then piloting it solo down to the bottom of the Marianas Trench and documenting new undersea species. But when you're just making more avatars, I don't know. Now I'm a little, <laughs> a little impatient. Speaking of. <laughs> Speaking of impatient. <laughs> All right, so this well, one was directed by Yeah, yeah, yeah. John we're going to talk McGoons. We're going to talk McGuffins or in Korean's televisionary landmark and related documents of memory is not of a degree capricious. Nope. It is not of a degree mercurial. Nope. It is not of a degree flighty. Nuh-uh. What is it, Glenn? It's, uh, it's of a degree absolute, Chris. All right, get on with it already. 
All right, so this film was directed by, I'm going to say John Huff is how we pronounce that. John Huff, who spent the 60s. Not, not John Ho? I don't think so, because um, he's British. I think so I think Huff. this is, it's more probably Huff. He spent the 60s as a second unit director on a lot of schlocky things, like, uh, you know, your basic uh, spy shows. He was he did the Avengers. He did a lot of films like Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, The Legend of Hell House, The Incubus. He did Escape to Witch Mountain for Disney. Um, so this is not Ooh. John Corman-level schlock, but this is schlock. This is like one level up Roger from Corman? schlock. Roger Corman? Roger Corman, sorry, yeah. This is one level up from Roger Corman level schlock, as I would say. This is just, this is kind of like basic schlocky films. You um, left out Twins of Evil. Twins of Evil, the, which is an hammer. erotic vampire thriller, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, featuring twin, twin Playboy Playmates. Uh, it's made by Hammer. It has uh, Peter Cushing in it. Yeah. Uh, I, I was actually kind of struck looking at his filmography how many different how many different films I'd seen of this director I'd never really thought wow. about over different points in my life. Like, I've seen Twins of Evil. As a kid, I saw uh, Watcher in the Woods. Uh, Watcher in the Woods, which, sure. Yeah, it was a, was, a, was a favorite. And Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. Um, you know, I, I can't say any of these are great, but I have seen them, you know, and, and uh, he made them all. Yes, they exist. You Google this and Roger Ebert. I always look for the, the Ebert take on, mm-hmm. you know, films from a 40-year span, right? I couldn't find a uh, – didn't look very hard, but I, I didn't find an Ebert review. But the, the one that uh, came up was from Movie Tone News, February 1979, credited to one Richard T. Jameson, who seems like he has a level of antipathy for John Ho- Ho- no, Hoff. Huff. Huff. We agreed on Huff. We agreed on Huff. Second only to his – Antipathy for James Goldstone, whoever that is. Scrapers of cinematic barrel bottoms stand advised. John Huff has laid incontestable claim to his long-sought title, The New James Goldstone. The department confesses to having been remiss in not calling your attention to the first change in the wind, the old James Goldstone's 1977 realization of Roller Coaster, a sense-around disaster pick so inoffensive, even moderately competent in execution, that it alienated the taken-for-granted audience... For such fare and failed at the box office. At this time, we can only find conjecture. Find conjecture. What the hell did that mean? Whether Goldstone's unanticipated lurch toward respectability. So this is why I really miss writing, <laughs> writing film reviews. Um, da, 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 da. So he goes on saying how um, Huff is even worse than than James Goldstone, and then he eventually gets around to talking about Edward Herman and uh, Robert Vaughn. and yeah. You want to you say what he says about them, Chris? I don't think you're allowed to say what he says about them. He applies the adjective menopausal to the <laughs> homophobic epithet that he then uses. Yeah, he calls them menopausal mm. faggots. And uh, uh, this is some old school like Hollywood writing. This is some old school. like He comes out and calls the director a hack. You know, he throws elbows. I mean, if I could get away with calling this, this you kind this of couple, miss it, right? This a little bit. I mean, just to something bit. so so nasty. Kind of like I miss the kind of old school, completely superfluous gay panic that's in this movie about these two uh, characters who don't need to be queer, but they are just to kind of underline the whole their evil thing. Um, I kind of enjoyed that actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long. You know what I enjoyed was uh, this was that these the star of the Man from Uncle calls his lover Auntie. Auntie and Walty, Cute. also, also, yeah, these things. Um, yeah, so that's this director. I don't have much to say about him. He seems like kind of a workmanlike, um, you know, let's call him Hack. Um, this... let's, call, let's call him a, a journeyman. I think a that's, journeyman that's, that's, that's the polite way of saying yes. it, right? And speaking of journeyman, like, this film stars John Cassavetes, who, as an actor, puts in the work, right? He, he'll, do, he'll hit his spots. He'll do what he needs to do. I can never reconcile in my head that, distinction between John Cassavetes the actor and John Cassavetes the director. His films 
are the antithesis of this movie. They have right. such weird idiosyncratic energy. It's kind of like pseudo-cinema verite. They're so intimate and they're so personal and they're so uncomfortable. And then he stars in this this stuff. This, this, this He churns out this kind of stuff. I, I totally get what you're saying and that is that is how I describe Sam Shepard, right? Sam Shepard who is this truly visionary playwright but the kind of movie roles that he plays, like he's the general in Black Hawk Down or sure. he's the, the professor in the Pelican Brief. He's that like very conventional kind of four square roles that probably don't demand much of him emotionally. Similar, similar thing. I was just struck by how many different, uh, you know, giants of different, of, of, of different sorts of movies are in this film. I mean, yeah. Max von Sydow of, of, of uh, Mark yeah. Bergman films and, and then Sophia Loren, just, you know, quintessential 60s international movie Top star. Build, also, Sophia yeah, Cass- Loren. Top build Sophia Loren. Yeah, and the Cassavetes who essentially has invented his own genre of, of cinematic drama. I mean, mm-hmm. and, but it is, you know, we complain about the Marvel Cinematic Universe to suck in all the acting talent, but I mean, this is kind of the 1978 equivalent of that. You know, this is, you, you want to go do the passion projects but you want to pay the bills you sign right. up for these big international co-productions that uh you know you'll fund the next at least part of the catering bill for the next john cassavetes film or whatever yeah, you right. know? Absolutely. <laughs> and uh also stars george kennedy as Patton. now Ke- uh, kennedy actually knew Patton. he actually served under Patton. really uh, yeah wow. he um uh, enlisted in world war ii in 1943 he served 16 years in the army he reached the rank of captain uh, he served in the infantry under Patton. He fought the Battle of the Bulge. He got a couple of bronze stars. He re-enlisted after the war was over and then got discharged in the late 50s because of a back injury. Um, so he knows Patton. So this is, wow. this is, this Patton is, is coming from someplace. I, 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 I don't know. So if when I've, we are I, introduced to him, he is listening to his own farewell speech on a record. Which is a very Patton thing. Yeah, that's reportedly that's a very Patton like a okay. love of his own voice kind of thing, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like if the film does not want to risk besmirching the the reputation and image of, of Patton, you might just start the scene after that, <laughs> you know, after he's just, just relaxing with his feet up on his desk, listening to a record of himself. But well, uh, I, mean, I appreciated that. Right? This is counterculture, right? So I don't think, um, even though there is this whole recurring theme of uh, 59 GIs were killed, I can't, I can't let that go. Like, there's that recurring uh-huh. theme. I think this is kind of, we're allowed to see a warts and all pattern. I think that's kind of what yeah. this film's doing. Which, by the way, I needed Cassavetes to, to say that. I needed the, to tell me he, he were killed because I thought they were just uh, getting goldfingered. You know, at the end of yeah, Goldfinger, yeah. the, the mm-hmm. knockout a, gas. That's Fort right. That is a very just, Batman 66 and it does, Yes, it does look like they just kind of flop over. Yep. You know, no one's convulsing or foaming at the mouth or anything. So, uh, yeah, I thought they were just... Because nice they were real GIs. They were real uh, They're real army people. Um, they're not actors. Um, they, they conscripted actual GIs to, <laughs> to portray that scene. <laughs> All right. Yes, at the same time that Francis Ford Coppola was over in, what, Thailand, like getting the real army to uh, lend him helicopters <laughs> when they weren't <laughs> fighting an actual war. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, 1978, right? That's, that's when he was there. Yep. Now, guys, this doesn't happen often, but this is a film I have seen before. When I was a kid, I saw this film. When I was eight, Aww. nine, ten years old, we'd go to, you know, we drive to Disney World, to Myrtle Beach, to Colonial Williamsburg, which means we would stay in motels. My parents would put me and my brother in one bed, and they would be in the other bed, and they would this, not... This is how the, the Clemics did it also. Exactly. They wouldn't care that we were watching 
also what they were watching because the time of you put your kid in front of like a screen because there's so much kid content around that didn't happen when you were a kid back then you had to catch up um and uh, you'd be brought along for the ride i would fall half asleep and i'd so want to stay up i'd so want to stay up but i they just would put on whatever was like on demand at the at the motel so my memories of movies like greece Patton, uh the onion field the what they watched the boys from brazil and the 1978 film brass target are kind of filtered through my eight, nine, ten-year-old brain and uh, REM, REM sleep, right? So I remember the first time I sat down to watch Grease for the first time, it was like, what, did they cut out the the shower scene with all the T-birds kind of soaping each other's backs? Because I'm sure there was one. I'm sure I saw it. Or, wasn't there a giant pelican at some point? And it's like, it's no, that's just, it's just. Now, wait, okay, so you're watching these on, are, are these uncensored versions of these? When it's on, when it's, yes, it's not broadcast. When it's on in your hotel okay. on demand, it is uncensored, which is how I remembered very clearly okay. sweet red commie ass because I was <laughs> scandalized. It's the first curse word I ever heard in a film, I think. This is why this is a dad movie. This is what our friend Matt Gorley would call a Saturday afternoon lawnmower. A <laughs> Saturday <movie>. lawnmower. <laughs> With a glass of lemonade. With a glass yeah. of lemonade. <laughs> All right, any thoughts before we kick in? Because what's going to happen now, Keith, is I'm going to go through the plot of this thing in excruciating oh. detail. And your job <laughs> is to interrupt whenever you have a thing mm. to say about a scene. Sounds good. Oh, and also, th- also, thank you, because I, <laughs> I found this movie a little confusing <laughs> at times, so I'm looking forward to getting yeah. uh, my questions mm-hmm. answered. I was actually, while we were talking here, I found a, a review from the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is not, uh, skimming it, does not seem to feature the F slur, uh, but it oh, does great. say that John Huff, the director, we decided Huff, right? Yeah, uh, John Huff, the director, yeah. seems to be as much in the dark as the audience, so I don't know. We'll see. No, this was not a well-reviewed film. I mean, this was a six, you know, number 13, fine, but it was not a well-reviewed film, and it is often needlessly convoluted and um, and it double, doubles back on itself for no particular reason. Okay. In August 1945, occupying forces of the U.S. Third Army discovered $250 million in gold, the entire German Reichbank reserve in an abandoned salt mine. General George S. Patton ordered the gold sent to vaults in Frankfurt for safekeeping. This is where we get Sophie Loren, First Bill, John Cassavetes, George Kennedy, Robert Vaughn, Patrick McGowan coming in fifth. I already have a note. Mm-hmm. This is perhaps the most boring title card that I've ever seen at the beginning of a film. Like usually you get a little music or something. Mm-hmm. You get a, again, the perfect example is the way that the title card that is preserved entirely uh, from the original Top Gun and reprised in Top Gun Maverick simply by, with the exception that they say men and women instead of yep. men. But the way that the Harold Faltermeyer theme is building under it, and then they withhold the title for just a second, and then it comes up. Like, that's how you're supposed to do a fucking title card. Yeah. It's just train sounds, and, like, there's isn't even any music. And I like train sounds, but this is boring. No, but the the other thing that bugs me about that is the logo for Brass Target is in blue. Uh Uh-huh. Have the courage of your conviction. Make it brass. Like, make it a color. Yeah. Um, so what we see also as, like the the little site is that it's I think that thing is called like the crosshairs yeah. that's called a reticule or, or something reticule um, but it's how. reticule okay it's not aimed at anything nope. <laughs> it's not aimed at the train nope. it's just a, like you're, you're gonna miss your shot there guy Indeed. like maybe you're just trying to <laughs> fire a warning shot at the engineer of the train but to your point Keith they spent money on this like this train is trundling through the German the actual German countryside there mm-hmm. are like down German fighters, which I thought was a really nice touch, and I thought this film was going to be better than I think it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, not to be the case, but it looked good. <laughs> looked good. 
Yeah, produ- production values are quite high. They really are. There's a scene where he's walking to his apartment in a bombed-out Frankfurt, and you're like, that looks like a bombed-out Frankfurt. That does mm-hmm. not look like yeah. a back lot. That looks awesome. Um, and then later on, when we get that amazing uh, church shootout, which yeah, yeah. I, I don't recall seeing in another film, uh, climaxing in a startlingly lifelike dummy being... Mm, for, no, yeah, actually, we'll it wasn't. There's, <laughs> a, couple, there's <laughs> a couple startlingly lifelike dummies in this thing. So again, we talked about this already, but Robert Vaughn is in bed. Edward Hermit is nervously pacing and smoking. His bed is his side of the bed is rumpled up, pushed up against Robert Vaughn. And I was like, I, 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 you guys, I got excited because I was like, are we going to get some old school Hollywood gay panic here? Are we going to get classic evil homosexual content? Because I do miss it. I mean, we've come so far, we've progressed, but. Sometimes when I was reading old uh, Clive Cussler novels or Webb Griffith novels or, or, or Tom Clancy novels and there'd be like a character who was, you know, with a cigarette lighter, like a cigarette holder as he's, you know, uh, admitting a yeah. young boy into his uh, boudoir because he's evil. I was like, yeah, right. This is like James Mason in um, North by Northwest. Yes, was... exactly. Like James Mason, like the kids in rope. <laughs> Was JFK kind of the end of that? Because there was such an oh. outcry about it at the time. That's a good uh, question. You know, because yeah. it was sort of like like these are these are people conspiring to kill the president. Who and you know what? They're gay too. I mean, also, how much how much darker can can we get? Not, they are not just gay. They are not just merely gay. They are yeah. really most sincerely gay. <laughs> JFK is, a, I think, December 91. Basic Instinct is March 92, mm. which, of course, had been pillared and... Uh, pillared? No, not... Uh, protested pilloried. and pilloried. Uh, picketed, picketed, pilloried, picketed, pilloried, both work. During its production, you know, when the script leaked and... And Silence of the Lambs was uh, was early 91. And, and yeah. you know, De- Demi, like, apparently made Philadelphia because he was... He heard the, the, the critique of Silence of the Lambs and, and thought, okay, I, I, sh- I should try to make this right yeah so i i those uh i'd say those three films right all coming out within a year of each other silence of the mm-hmm. lambs jfk and basic instinct maybe mm-hmm. but even back in 1978 in this film what i will say is that neither herman or vaughn are really camping it up in any way they are just playing it very straight as it were so to speak um and just he doesn't put a lot of spin on ante he does say relax walty we're inches away which mm, it's pretty close um so there's a shot from the train looking out the front of the train. And I remember, this is when I got the flashback of, oh, I've seen this film before, because I remember that towards the end of this film, we're going to see a shot of Patton's limo with the flag, the three-star, four-star flag flapping from the from the car as it goes around corners. Mm. Like, that's a very, that's um, when I remembered that I had seen this thing. Yeah. Okay, so the train enters a tunnel, and then somewhere at the transfer station sends a tram kind of thing on a collision course. Um, I think it's got headlights to make the people on the train think that it's an oncoming train. Right. That's, that's what I took from that. Yeah. I was thinking it was going to be a bomb, but it's not. It's just debris. I, I was conditioned to expect the explosion because of the sound of the little trolley cart or whatever the hell it is going squeak, 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 yeah. squeak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the track. I was like, this, this needs to precede a loud sound. Mm-hmm. But. Um, but no... Then the tubes along the train tunnel release gas. And as I say, this is some Batman 66 nonsense that I'm right here for. Um, yep. You do have to admire the math involved because it's like oh, the train leaving Dusseldorf at 4.15. <laughs> it's a whole thing. <laughs> um, I thought of Top Secret more than once when sure, I was watching sure, this film. Uh, so uh, some dudes in gas masks blow the sides of the freight car open. They start getting the gold. I thought this would be much more of a thing, like getting the gold. Like I thought yeah. we'd get... Process, 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 and notice that we cut away to Patton. Yeah, gold's heavy. 
I mean, it's very heavy. This is what I, take okay, an effort to get you. out of there. Thank you. This is actually a, a change from Ian Fleming's novel Goldfinger to the movie Goldfinger. It's like in the, like the novel, it really was a intended as a ripoff, and it was only the screenwriters who was like, "How are you going to get the gold out of there?" Mm-hmm. And that's why they changed it to like, "Okay, we're going to irradiate the gold and make it unusable, untouchable, instead of actually removing it." Smart. Yes. So we cut to Patton in his giant fucking ass office. Like that is a that's that office is too big. Uh, listening to his own farewell speech with a kind of genuine melancholy look on his face. Um, this is where he gets, so I hired a couple of Nazis. I, 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 I wrote that down. My notes here say that is ham-fisted, Bavarian ham-fisted. It's just, just, just watching the January 6th hearings just uh, right, right here. Right? Uh, he's going to be like, um, I'm not going to. I'm not going to schmooze the Soviets. I hate the fucking Ruskies, blah, blah, blah. I'll never, I'll never kowtow to them. Cut to him having to schmooze the Ruskies. And that's, you know, I remember if my dad was watching that, that's the kind of stuff my dad loved. Like, oh, that's how they get you. You know, yeah, you got to The same go way that, that you, like that train kind of conditions you to expect a, a degree of spectacle that we don't get here. There is a sense of humor in that cut yep. that does not carry through the remainder of this film. Nope, 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 no. nope. I think they're, they they wanted some of that humor to be in uh, Kennedy's performance. I think they were, I think they wanted him to be comic relief, and mm. I don't mm. think it quite manifests. I didn't laugh a lot. I don't, can, can, can George <laughs> Kennedy is he ever funny? He's funny when when he plays it straight, right? I mean, you know, yeah, that's what makes it work in Naked thing. Gun. Yeah, 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 but but Kennedy. Kennedy I'm not sure. He's, I don't. I don't think of him as a comedic giant, but maybe no. there's films I have not seen that that would change my mind. I mean, I definitely laughed pretty hard at the very end when uh, Cassavetes shoots Max von Sydow with his own custom designed petard, his cork gun or whatever, and we see von Sydow's neck break, and then he like falls down the ski slope, and his body hits a couple times, and then he explodes in this gigantic fireball. <laughs> um, that that was a pretty good laugh, that but was um, good. leading up to that, not many. So at this uh, reception, the Russians, just outside the window, as they're having, as they're having their, their drinks, they execute a soldier for stealing. So, you know, dinner and a show, I guess. I, <laughs> I don't know why you'd complain about that. I meant to look up who the, the Russian general in that scene was, because um, I thought he was pretty great. He's chewing. He's chewing that scenery. Um, the Russian general accuses Patton of being on the hijacking of the train and warns him that the gold belongs to allies. And, we want it back, which sounds more German than Russian to me. That's but not Russian. I know. Um, Patton vows to find the gold, and as you so aptly uh, uh, indicated, Chris, he wants to shove every bar up his sweet red cummy ass. Every goddamn bar. This movie's just getting gayer. Um, so, Major DeLuca. This is when we meet Major DeLuca. This is Cassavetes. He's a former OSS guy who arrives to see Colonel Lawson, who is played by a very young, uh, infantile right. Bruce Davidson. Say, uh, OSS was the precursor to the CIA. Exactly. OSS was like the dirty tricks, covert mm-hmm. assassinations and sabotage and such. So you'd think they'd be all secret, okay. secret, secret. But then as soon as DeLuca enters uh, Davison's office, he just kind of like, hey, like that guy I killed in, uh, in, in Odessa and that guy, uh, guy that time yeah. took out those three people. Like he's giving his resume in a way that I yeah. think these people are not supposed to do. <laughs> he refers to a, a partisan that he drowned. Yep. I didn't know there was another definition of partisan other than the way we use it when we discuss politics. Yeah. Uh, I guess partisan actually means something specific in yep. fascist Italy. I'm not sure I realized until now that Davidson was supposed to be a colonel. He is very young, too. He have, is a very young. Yeah. And they make, a, they make a point of this later, yeah. 
Yeah, and I, well, I mean, Patty McGee, when we finally get to him, is is so hard to understand. <laughs> I had to run it back a couple of days when I realized that he actually said that he was supposed to be a sixteen year old. I had to Colonel the too, yes. the the Doogie Hauser of the Third Army, I I guess. So what Cassavetes is serving us here is grizzled over it. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a desiccated husk of a man because of what I've seen and what I've done, which mm-hmm. isn't a lot to chew on, right? I mean, there's not. He's a great actor. He's such a great actor, and mm-hmm. when he's playing human emotions and relationships, he's amazing. And here he's just kind of. Uh, yeah, I don't think he really cares about this. Um, this would be a a flashy star role like a decade after this, right? Like mm-hmm. you can you can imagine the Jerry Bruckheimer version of this, where it's uh, it's, it's Michael Douglas or it's um, Travolta for a, you know a certain moment. It would have been Travolta, or you, like you can totally imagine Bruce Willis sure. in the the Cassavetes part in this, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is this is a Bruce Willis role, right? This is like the, yeah, I can the see that stoic guy who yeah. doesn't have to act <laughs> he can just play yeah i've done what i've done so now keith this is ostensibly a prisoner podcast but it's a prisoner <laughs> podcast in name only because this is a patrick mcguin stan yes. podcast mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. i think is one of the better intros that a patrick mcguin character gets uh, we've seen a lot there's more to see but like i think just this this is how you if you want to be memorable, like I'm sure he kind of went to the director and said, here's 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 what's going to happen. <laughs> because DeLuca goes <laughs> to this castle, this Stadt, and there's German folk music. And a waiter brings Patrick McGowan a bottle for his approval. And the look that he is serving us as he sits at this long table is kind of um, Bavarian Truman Capote, right? So he's got like... <laughs> A very stylish that hat with the feather in it. That must have some. It's got yeah. Name. It's it's a classic Bavarian like feather thing. He's got a scarf. He's got a sweater. Really ugly sweater. He's got a cigar. He is Colonel Mike McCauley. He's requisitioned this castle and he's living high on the schnitzel. Colonel Fritz, is there good, Colonel McCauley? Their best. Then. My friends, he starts talking, and boy, I was not expecting this. He zagged on me. It's so good. What he gives us, <laughs> it's, a, it's if you are, if you have been putting yourself through really boring Patrick McGowan performances because like he only gets like three lines or something, this is a gift. This is this is Patty <laughs> Rizzo. I'm walking in. This is. Goodfellas. Oh, this is Sopranos. This is the fucking Zidi. What did you do? You stole the whole goddamn castle? Just requisitioned it. Gotta have some place to sleep. You understand? I need a clearance. For what? I want to go home. You want to go home? Everybody wants to go home. I know where you came from. You just saw... Little southern fried chicken by the name of Dawson, right? And a 16-year-old kid, Colonel. Young for Colonel. I saw him, too. You know what? The OSS used to be the greatest thing during the war, but since then, all we are now is a bunch of thieves and murderers. Isn't that right? We just did what we had to do. Did you? Yeah, we didn't think about it. Didn't you? All right, my lover, buddy, give me a couple of weeks. 
uh, very fancy uh, typing paperwork with that southern fried chicken young colonel. You'll be so confused within two weeks that you'll be back home in New York eating your favorite steak at your favorite place, which is? Touch shorts. Medium rare. You're full of shit. How are you, you son of a bitch? Good. Sehr gut. Fantastic. There's this exchange where it seems like they don't really know each other. And then DeLuca says, you son of a bitch. And it's like this facade is dropped. And now they're they're going to relate like old pals. But I, like, what was that all about? Like, there's no audience here. They're, well, they're these these musicians. Yep. And that made me laugh when I realized that he wasn't listening to a record, that he actually had a, like a little band there performing <laughs> for him alone. But I think what's happening is that he is imitating Cassavetes accent. I think that's what we're led to believe because it is so oh, let's play some Koshu. Oh, I will not be pushed by the next step pretty brief the numbered. Who is number one? Forget about it. Like it is so Patrick Dice McGowan that it's it's much bigger than he is in his other scenes. Right? He's mirroring Cassavetes, because Cassavetti comes in with his, hey, oh, oh. I went back and, and watched the scene with uh, where he's with Robert Vaughn, which we'll talk about soon. And, like, it's not, it's there, but it's not that mm. thick. I think he's just, like, yeah. this is this is who this character is. He mirrors people. What do you guys think? Because I, I can't figure this out. That not occurred to me, but that makes a lot of sense. I mean, insofar as we can make sense of the scene or that character. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that's, I, I like I like that reading. Yeah, I, I mean, I wasn't sure initially if um, Macaulay was supposed to be OSS also, and he's not, right? I no, mean, he's he OSS. Out, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. everybody out. Okay, so so first, when when Deluca, when Cassavetes goes to him, mm-hmm. right, he wants to leave Germany, yep, and go back to the states, and is complaining that uh, the sixteen-year-old colonel has detailed him to stick around and investigate this gold theft. And, and it seems like, like, and because, you know, as we will will shortly learn in the next scene between McGowan and Robert Vaughn, that McGowan is a conspirator mm-hmm. in this, right? He was part of the, the plot. I mean, what happens in this scene plot-wise, far less interesting than what happens character-wise, but, but McGowan grants the request, right? He says, like, yes, I'll do some typing. He says, I'll try. And uh, I'll, yeah, like, I'll, I'll try, to, try to get you out of this. And, of course, he would want to because if he knows that DeLuca is competent, that he doesn't want DeLuca investigating the robbery that he's a part of, right? Yes, exactly. Right. We don't know that yet, but yeah, uh, but we will very soon know, know know that. But yeah, and so he says he'll he'll he says I'll get you home, and then Deluca says you're full of shit. So this is this is this and is that no. He says you're full of shit, and I remember thinking, okay, well, this is even if they know each other, like this is still a major telling a colonel you're full of shit, right? Mm-hmm. Like I mean, that's a like you wouldn't do that unless you really are friends, and there yeah, really is no one around to say, witness. Then he calls that, him yeah, my lover, okay. my buddy. I mean, like, hey. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Then at that point, they do the uh, Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers and Predator. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. some damn fool accused you of being the best. Now, uh, speaking of my lover, my buddy, enter Sophia Loren with just, I would say, a thin layer of Vaseline, a thin layer of suet on the lens. You know, not thick, not like. She is Mara. She is from Poland. <laughs> plausible. <laughs> Sophia Very Loren. Plausible. Hey. Now, granted, like the Clemex. I'm just saying, like it's only oh, what a thousand miles, eleven hundred miles between Warsaw and Rome, but you can feel Boy. All, every mile here. 
Uh, so she and Joe DeLuca were once a thing. She's with Macaulay now. And then, like, Keith, you don't know this, but Patrick McGowan has a thing where he doesn't want to kiss women on camera because it's... Uh, it's uh, smutty. I, 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 the children won't like it. No, no child is watching this movie. But he doesn't. He has this thing where he doesn't kiss women yeah. on screen. No, he he likes to yell at them and and berate them. Exactly. But uh, he does not like to express any tenderness. <laughs> this, he's a strict Catholic, right? That's 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 where this yeah, is coming yeah, yeah. from. That's okay. where he says. Yeah. That's where he says it comes from. So it's kind of yeah, like Kurt Cameron are... brings his his wife in to kiss as his kissing double for for films. <laughs> <laughs> Was there anything like that with McGowan? Or... <laughs> I have a piece. Seems like yeah. it's a piece. Okay. That would actually work better than some of the uh, the sort of workarounds that, that we've gotten in various Prisoner episodes. <laughs> yeah, all right. But at this point, Patty is standing atop the stairs. Sophia fucking Loren is coming up the <laughs> stairs. And they they should kiss in the universe. Like, if he was an inanimate object and Sophia Loren <laughs> comes up the stairs, they should kiss. It's Sophia Loren. Yeah. Uh, but no, he just kind of waves her through. Keep, keep going. <laughs> Nothing more to see here. Ah, oh, man. Anyway, so we learn that Patton is investigating this uh, personally. His aide, uh, Stuart, yeah. goes to talk to our gay power couple. The CID couldn't find manure in a stable or exactly. something. Exactly. Uh, and then Patty tells Deluca to leave alone, obviously, because now we are realizing, we, don't, we haven't quite gotten this proof yet, but we're realizing he's in on it too. And DeLuca says if he doesn't figure the gold heist out and he's got, and he, he does have a promising lead, he's never going to go home. I'm a Sicilian. Everything's a conspiracy, which is coming out. This is a line that comes out in a post-Godfather universe, cinematic universe, so that's why it's there. Uh, Patty then gets on a train, and this scene is fun, not because of its execution or what it is in the within the movie, but because of what it represents. This is... Danger Man, number six, secret agent, and meeting... Man from Uncle, yeah, that right. Napoleon Solo. This is fun. This is great. This is these two people who are both mannered in their different ways. I think I think Vaughn's a little bit more controlled. But these are two 60s television spies having a moment on a train. Son of a bitch. Farragut bastard. You know, you nearly blew the whole goddamn king for us! down. Why did you have to get rid of that money so fast in Paris? What was that goddamn hurry? DeLuca found out the bank he is that the way that million. Did you know that? What's he doing? He's talking his head off the doors. And we have to get DeLuca home fast before he does any more damage. It's in the works already. And Vaughn kind of does the same thing in everything. Does he not? Yeah, he's not... Uh, he, he doesn't He doesn't make big choices. Put it, <laughs> put it that way. Someone's butting in. Somebody that I can't buy off. Who? Pat. George S. Jr. He's taken over the investigation, which means he's not going to stop until he finds us. We're going to have to put him out of business. My part's done. Not yet. we got to shut him up. Nobody shuts up, Pat. Besides, I only fight guys my own size. What's the next stop? I'm going to get off it. Too late, buddy. You're on the board of directors. If we hang... I didn't kill those guys. You sold me to Lucas' plan. Same thing. Patty is angry that Robert Vaughn gave DeLuca the lead that he did. Now we're going to have to take out Patton. Uh, we learned that Patty McGee sold... Uh, right, and, it, and it's not just like he, he, you know, unwittingly let slip some clue. Like, he took some of this gold and went to a bank and, like, 
Did traded it, it in for yeah, cash, right? He just—it's like you—you you, you fenced the stolen merch right. too soon. That stuff was still hot. Like he just—he's just being a bad criminal yep. here. And then Patty says, because we're supposed to, I think, sympathize with him a little bit. He says, "I didn't kill those GIs, those fifty-nine GIs." And then Robert Vaughn's character says, "Yes, but you sold me the plans. You sold me the Lucas plans. So it's kind of on you." Um, Patty's accent in this scene, as it often does, slides around a lot. <laughs> Kel, General Patton. It gets a bit less uh, Grand Concourse in the Bronx, but we do get, it's a sewer, a rat-infested sewer. <laughs> it's like, no, oh, this, is, this is why, this is, the, this is the price of admission, right? This is why I, I've, I rewound. Yes, of course. But a sewer, a rat-infested sewer. Now, I may drink just a little bit too much and... Uh, Play with the girls a little bit and steal a little bit. But you're out of your goddamn mind if you think I'm going to kill General Patton. My dear Colonel, we're not asking you to do it. And then he says, now I may drink a little bit too much, play with the girls a little. I don't buy that. But, you know. No, he protests too much yes. there. And steal a bit too much. <laughs> and that's, oh, <laughs> this is also where it's like, blah, blah. This, is, this is what I want. He says that, and at this point you expect some some pianist uh, accompanist who we have not seen yet to just start the number right is it like this is a lead in to a number <laughs> this is it that's the irish coming out that little lilting thing out of <laughs> yeah, nowhere right. yes so we cut to a riverboat uh somewhere in switzerland uh and max von Sydow in a wig he meets uh patty mcgee he's using the alias of mr rogers which is robert vaughn's character's name so it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood um there's a scene there where they ask for dog tags now i guess in post war europe that must have been like a thing right that must have been like show me who you really are like it yeah. didn't occur to me but i like it right i like it as a plot thing yeah I like it as a and I, thing. I guess it's maybe especially in like a you know post-war scarcity it's, it's probably not so easy to get those by illegitimate means i yep. mean you can just you could just buy them at the air and space museum now like if you're <laughs> a, i think they're like five dollars but uh yeah you could press a penny yeah. or uh, get a yep. dog <laughs> rogers john d oh one six four eight double zero eight Religion, Protestant, blood type O. Any mistakes on your part, and you may have need of both. I think we're both aware of the price of failure. Uh, do you mind if I have that back in case they have to bury me? The price is to take out Patton is 500,000 American dollars, which seems just, I mean, that's... This is 1945. That's $6 million now? That's a lot of money. I I did not go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics inflation calculator as I usually do when when anyone expresses a price for anything (laughs) in a a movie. But yeah, it seems like... And then, the, but the having Mc never said, taken out a hit on anybody yeah, uh, to this date, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I, I have no idea why. Like when when someone's, you know, I, I forget what movie it was, but someone was hired for three thousand dollars to kill someone. It seems incredibly low, but I mean, yeah. I don't know what the going yeah. rate is. The low, low price. Yes. Well, Ticketmaster, of course, swears that the international button men they represent can set <laughs> <parameters> <laughs> on the dynamic pricing, as with Springsteen tickets. But um, yeah, I, I don't buy it. This is a, a tangent of the uh, type of which our podcast is, is famously tolerant. I mentioned the dissolve earlier. I know one of the reasons that I, I have had a big chip on my shoulder for the last seven years about um, how I feel like 
I wish I'd had any interest in being a food writer because it seems like, you know, the sky's the limit for a food writer just sure. every place has increased its food coverage. And, to, and, and I went directly from I, I, I was doing the um, O'Neill uh, Playwrights Conference, like their criticism thing uh, in the summer of 2015 when I found out about the dissolve going down. And I got that news and then I went directly into a session with the food editor of The New York Times. Hmm. I won't say his name, but you know, food editor, New York Times. And he spent most of the session talking about how like well my section doesn't really have a budget you know and we we have to um, you know and usually if, I, if I'm going to review a restaurant I have to eat there a few times right and I mean I and obviously I have to bring people because if I'm just eating by myself they're going to know I'm a critic and and like sometimes I'll go to a restaurant and I'll go back and decide like you know I, there's, there's there's no review here like I you know so I'll just <laughs> have the meals but but my section doesn't really have a budget and and like, I have just absorbed the news of the, the greatest <laughs> film criticism site on the internet. Oh, gosh. Being memory hold. So uh, I, I probably would have paid 500000 to to take him out uh, <laughs> in, in, that, in that moment, Keith. Yeah, I'm trying to remember how much it is in uh, House of Gucci, how much they spend. I think it's like 300 maybe. It seems, I think I'm yeah. maybe. But maybe it's different in Europe, though. Maybe it's the going rate is different is, yeah, over there. Different. Yeah. Subsidized by the government, you know. So it's going to happen in December. It's going to look like an accident. Vaughn orders Patty back to Frankfurt, uh, even though Patty wants to stay around in Switzerland and play around. You know play, what I mean? You it's know? Like, oh, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's such a terrible yuck. Colonel Rogers, it's all set, done. Good. Macaulay, I want you back in Frankfurt. We've got another problem. Frankfurt? Oh, come on, Rogers. What's the hurry? I want to spend a couple of days in Switzerland. Uh, Playing around, you know what I mean. Be in your apartment. Yuck. <laughs> <laughs> have a little. <laughs> little. You, know what I mean? you want to sit in your castle and have your little oompa band play yep. with you, and that's fine. Like follow your bliss. So Vaughn uh, wants to take him out. He goes back. Patty goes back to his apartment in a bombed-out Frankfurt, which again I think looks great. There's a lot of long shots in this movie of just people. Mm. Like Max von Sydow at one point goes up to his apartment, and way in the background, far too far in the background, there is like cars, period cars, going back and forth on a street that you would not see unless you're looking for them very hard. We used to do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess we still do it now with CGI, but... Yeah, you can CGI, you know, whatever in there now, but... I guess. But yeah. yeah. I mean, for a, a, a movie that we all watched in standard def, yeah. I, I feel like uh, every part of this, except for that dummy, <laughs> would, uh, would stand up <laughs> to high def scrutiny, no problem. Yep. Uh, so there's a Fraulein waiting for him, uh, setting a bath with bubbles. Your friend will be a little late, and he has asked me to make you comfortable. Hard, tiring day. <laughs> I have ready a bath for us. Yes? With bubbles? With a lot of Uh, we get the Patty Stripsties. Uh, we get bubbles? the Patty Garretting. Minute 37. So I don't know what I he know. came in at minute, what, 24? He came in at minute 17, exited at right, uh, 37. DeLuca investigates. They found cigarettes on his body, but he didn't smoke cigarettes. There's a cipher on the inside of the cigarettes. Okay, uh, I'm going to say, tomorrow morning I'm, I'm recording the PCHH on The Gray Man, uh -huh. which I mentioned only on our Prisoner podcast because Ryan Gosling plays an espionage guy named Six. Yeah, I know, right? 
It's a thing. There's more fucking tradecraft in this movie than there is in that. Like there is not like there's so little spycraft in that fucking movie. There there's a there's a micro like a microchip or whatever. <laughs> microchip you know, doesn't count. No, no, <laughs> microchip does not count. Come on. All right. Give me something, you know, written in invisible ink on a, you know, cigarette papers that were in your cigarette pack that uh, anyone who knows you would know is a clue because you only smoke cigars. Like, that is the shit that I want. I like that. I like that something that uh, another detail we'll get to later. I'll, I'll, I'll call it out when we get to it. Okay. Are you going to talk about the discovery that CID Forensics made? <laughs> Using uh, their, possibly. Yes, CID forensics have applied its incredible Nancy Drew technology to uh, to discover a clue. Well, this is it. This is the scene where like the the code gets broken. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. By a guy from the same part of the Bronx as uh, as, yeah. uh, as the Luca and uh, right. uh, these kids. It's the easiest thing in the world. So the note. Ed leads Burns us... based his performance in Saving Private Ryan exactly. on, on this guy. So the note leads us to prisoner Lucky Luciano. Is there anything you specific you want to say about the this code breaking? Oh, me? Either one of you, because I think you, isn't that the thing you wanted to talk about? Oh, no, I, I, I'm i referring to something else. Uh, the, okay. the, 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 yeah, we'll get to it. All right. This code breaking scene, to me, it, it did seem a little, uh, a little Batman 66, mm-hmm. uh, to your point, Glenn. Yes, exactly. Decoding one of the Riddler clues, and the, <laughs> yeah. they're like, well, oh, obviously, it means that uh, he's going to rob the Gotham Bank at 2 p.m. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of other ways you could have interpreted this message. Something, something, C, C, C for Catwoman, like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, of course. Uh, so DeLuca goes to tell Sophia Loren what's happened to uh, Paddy McGee. Stupid son of a bitch. It was kind to of me. He helped me when I needed it. This is a very long scene. This is an unnecessarily long scene. <laughs> It now becomes clear that this movie does not really know why Sophia Loren is in this movie. And no. I think she secured the financing. It's going to keep throwing possible reasons for Sophia Loren to exist in this movie at you, and none of them really take until the very end. And maybe this is sexist, but maybe it's because yeah. this is such a dad movie that you need to throw... I think they told her this movie was called Mara, and it yeah. was a, a drama about a woman torn between two grizzled warriors. That, at the that end of the could war. be a movie, and maybe <laughs> like if you're a dad in 1967 and you're dragging your wife along, she needs little something besides yeah. all the garroting and all the... like. <laughs> she, she just yep. needs some kind of human interest, but like there's, mm-hmm. it, it, there's no reason... It's a women's picture. For it to be in here. She made three films released in 1978, and I haven't seen the other two, although I'm, I'm intrigued. <laughs> One is Blood Feud, the Leonard Wertmuller uh, film. Oh, yeah. Um, oh. And the other is something called Angela, uh, where his, her co-stars are Steve Railsback and John Houston. So I, I don't okay. know. Oh, my God. Shoot. Steve Railsback from The Stuntman. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So anyway. For some reason, I, I sent Adam Kempinar a DVD of that once and and I was like, oh man, you got. I, I don't remember why I needed him to watch it. And once he watched it, he really didn't know why I wanted him to, <laughs> the stop man. But, uh, yeah, mm, it's a Richard. Um, what's it? The guy Richard who then later dir- right? Richard, yeah, int- interesting, interesting career. Yes, Color of Night mm-hmm. is him. Right. We went out on Color of Night. I really tried at one point to track him down for an anniversary of Color of Night thing. Uh, oh he was uh, he, I mean, he died not that long after that. Oh, he was God. quite old at the time. But he actually did a lot of uh, biker films in the '60s that, that, are, that are that are kind of interesting and really fascinating documents of of, of their moment. All right, we will uh, we will find some excuse to talk about Color of Night. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> 
I used to show that to people. It's like, you got to see this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. know? It's definitely one of those movies. Another film, another role that was uh, originally Cassavetes before it went to Bruce Willis. Mm. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. No. He was he was dead, but yes, you know, dead. nonetheless, Actually, he would have been he would have been right. good though if, if he'd been alive. It's <laughs> a low bar. Yes, <laughs> if he'd been alive. If you imagine John Cassavetes on top of a uh, Jane March who looks eleven, however old she actually is in real life. Mm-hmm. God. Uh, so at Great Meadow Prison, we meet uh, Lucky Luciano. We learn that Macaulay visited Lucky Luciano, pretending to be a Navy commander. There is a bunch of dick measuring in this scene some posturing uh what took my attention is the guy playing uh lucky luciano's mm, consigliere i guess this is yeah i thought he was a lawyer and then at the end of the scene he says says i'm no lawyer and then i'm like what are you doing here (laughs) that guy is played by the actor alan tillivern british guy uh probably great voice great great voice so i think is he's millhouse's dad no, well, he's, he's I mean, definitely he some Simpsons be. voice. That and I think he he's is, done uh, like a lot of Jay Ward voiceover stuff, but uh, hmm. like he is R.K. Maroon in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Probably. Oh, okay, okay. <clears throat> I was just struck by the casualness with which, like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna fly back to the states to talk to Luke, Luke Luciano, and I'll be back, you know, in a couple of days. I mean, this is this is 1945, 40, 45, 46. Yeah, he's not wearing prisoner overalls or anything. He's got a nice suit on. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, is this like when uh, when Polly went to jail in Goodfellas? He still has a pretty nice cell and like gets to keep his creature comforts because he's a big important gangster. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. what we take from this? Seems likely. Yep. Okay. So Macaulay wants the name of the best assassin in Europe. It's Gino Esposito, but he's just the contact man. The man you want comes out of Switzerland. He's the best in the business. Uh, so Max Vancito yes. slash Shelley. It's the same way that uh, number six in the update of The Prisoner is the the best in the business of bus driving. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so Max Vancito goes to visit a weapons maker. It can't be a conventional weapon. This This whole thing takes entirely too long. This is, again, I like the process stuff, but we divide this whole... Getting the weapon thing up into like six scenes. Uh, so um, the payoff is amazing. The payoff though. is pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> they will not accept a conventional bullet. Impossible. This is a rifle that fires engine parts. <laughs> <laughs> so DeLuca reports to Vaughn, who tries to throw them off, of course, and says, no, he's going after Eisenhower, he's not going after Patton. Then DeLuca sees Sophie Loren getting on a bus, and he gets really clingy really fast, and then she gets off the bus, and then uh, this scene does not belong in this movie. Then this the is, love this is, there's theme some from unearned Rass Target emotion plays. In it. Yeah. <laughs> And you're like, what, what movie are <laughs> right. we watching? Yes. Peter Cetera's Never Let You Go, parentheses, love theme yeah, from, from Brass Target. This is the thing that struck me, you know, when we would go back and we'd watch, like, Dynasty from the 70s. It's like, so many middle-aged people kissing and getting all wrinkly when they, <laughs> when they kiss. This is just this is just middle-aged people getting romantic uh, back in the 70s because apparently they were allowed to before we had the... Uh, we valued youth as much as we do. Yeah, boy, and, and I mean, Cassavetti's certainly a, a good actor who's maybe phoning it in here, mm-hmm. but there is an ordinariness to his appearance that we would soon no longer tolerate in movie stars, exactly. right? Like by by the eighties, like if you look like John Cassavetti's, you are you are not going to be a lead in a in a movie like this. Oh, I don't know, like Nicolas Cage, for example, doesn't look conventionally like uh, hot. 
That's kind of, and it was much commented upon at the time too. Yeah. There were like the, the earlier reviews of Valley Girl didn't know what to make of him. Like, well, there's one that likened him to Prince Charles, which I guess <laughs> you kind of see with. I don't know, but it it was. But yeah, well, anyway, I can go on. But was, was we're not say, talking no, about Nicholas Cage. I, I teed you up for that. This is, yeah, this is exactly. This is why I went. You, you said well, yeah, Valley Girl I, I think, has one of the great soundtracks, Keith. What's what's on the Valley Girl soundtrack? Do I need to? Uh... It's, oh gosh, it's well, it's the Plimsolls have a you know a band I I I, I love it, it feature prominently. I, I believe the the uh, uh, very sensitive Johnny, are you queer? Is uh, is on the soundtrack as well? Uh, oh gosh, what else is you know? You put me on the spot here, but yeah, it was uh, it was definitely a, a, a sort of a, a K rock time capsule of the early eighties, uh, California. Hmm. Johnny, are you queer? Was written by uh, the former film critic Richard T. Jameson, who uh, after yeah, right. <laughs> he was done. Johnny, are you a menopausal queer? Finished his character assassination of James Goldstone. Uh, <laughs> All right, so um, the weapon is ready. It's a rubber pellet that looks like something that could come from an engine. A, a bushing is what the uh, the MP eventually calls it. It's like, mm, I don't know what that is, but it sounds huh. engine It sounds like a car part, yeah. <laughs> sounds like a car part. <laughs> uh, it can hit the back of the spine, uh, the back of the head, just at the spine, and not break the skin. It have to bruise, though. It's going to bruise. And Max von Sydow, uh is very impressed with it, and he takes the old kind of Einsteinian weapons maker, and he just takes him out. Uh, which he is standing unwise. next to the target. Yeah, <laughs> he's standing right next to the target. He doesn't stand sufficiently away from it. This him. is a very, a very trusting, very credulous armorer. This guy, right? And just presumably, he it, he deals with some pretty shady characters too. So I wouldn't right. Necessarily... And also, this is a. I'm, I'm going to guess that because of the peculiar ammunition and everything, like this, probably. Does, and he's giving, he's talking him through the peculiarities about the, you know, aim to the right a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, how much better would this scene had been if Max von Sydow needed a couple tries to hit him? Yeah, that's true. Much better, right? <laughs> but also from Max von Sydow's perspective, like his character's perspective, just from a supply chain issue, like this guy is supplying you with lots of good stuff. This is probably not, although they do they do insert a piece of dialogue about how this guy was old and he probably doesn't have too many too much time left in him. So maybe that's why I couldn't figure out what that was, that line was doing in there. And then yeah. when he took him out like that, it's like, oh yeah, that's. But also, if you go to this guy to to make you this one of a kind exotic weapon, like why would you waste a round for that weapon on this guy? Like you could just you could you could you know strangle that guy. You could break his neck. You could like no one no one's gonna. He's testing it. Chris, that was what he was doing. He was testing the weapon. I get it. I mean, he could test, still test it on the. Well, like, I guess you can recover the the. Round, yeah, it seems like right? the ammunition is very reusable. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I did not. By the way, I I did not buy this at all. You know, in a film filled with contrivances, the 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 magic. You know, the, this. We need something that's hit, hit, yeah, magic bullet, <laughs> precisely. And it's, and it has to be an exact yeah, right location. Slick. Anyway, we'll get. Yes. I'm sure we'll get to the actual assassination <laughs> later. But but we'll carry on. Back and to the left. All right. So we learn uh, that Valcido has been in disguise this whole time. He removes the fakey wig. He removes the stash. He removes the colored contacts to reveal Max Valcido's icy blue, icy blue irises. So Edward Herman goes to another uh, uh, little inn, whatever, and catches Vaughn yep. with a twink. Um, it turns out that Macaulay has put Robert Vaughn's name on the dog tag that he gave to Max von Sydow uh-huh. as insurance, as a warning not to double-cross him. Did you follow this? This was a little layer of things that I was like, I had to kind of rewind there. I didn't uh, quite understand what was going on no. there. I, I, didn't even, I didn't even notice the twink. So You didn't uh, notice the twink? My, there was a whole my thing. My cinema literacy is... Uh, okay. 
There's some significant looks being exchanged. There's significant looks uh, being exchanged. Yeah. And then Ed, Edward Herbin says, did you enjoy it? What was it like? And he goes, you don't, you didn't co- I'll come all the way out here to ask me that. Um, oh, that's okay. I yeah. mean, I noted that, but I just thought that was a, I, I didn't, okay. I did not realize that guy was leaving Robert Vaughn's room. Yeah. I just thought they were having like a little checking each other out. Moment. But again, that would argue that it didn't need to be in this fucking movie. <laughs> there's no point. Of, there's no point. There's no reason. These are not real characters. So you can't get invested in whether you're or not about they're talking about Glenn. I, I found them to be believably dimensionally menopausal. Yeah. I don't know what you're what you're talking about. <laughs> and then Vaughn says to Edward Herman, "Don't get hysterical." Which mm, great. Um, so back in healthy, <laughs> hey, it's, it's still okay to say it to Edward Herman. Yes. Like you can, uh, it's perfectly fine to say it to. Back Edward. in heterosexuality, which we can all get behind, Deluca leaves to find Martin Weber. <laughs> who works with the uh, war refugee people. And again, turns out Mark Weber is big reveal, Max Vancito. Van he and DeLuca are old friends. They go out to lunch. If you like Chateaubriand, you'll bless the chef. Uh, right. There is some... They, they have a little drink of, what, claret or something Remy before Montaigne. lunch. Then it's off to lunch. Looks like a nice light lunch. Mm. I will say, I, 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 love, I love this about the character, that he's like essentially a very respected NGO official, right? I mean, yes. uh, uh, who is also... <laughs> <laughs> the world's greatest, Europe's greatest yes. assassin. I can't Europe's speak for the whole world. I love that. I just I, yes, <laughs> Boutros Boutros Gali is also the man with the golden gun. <laughs> That's right. That's and, and I presumably, you know, he does fine with his his professional career, but in the, the hitman stuff, maybe just for the love yeah. of the game or something. He's I don't. Just, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, by day, I I work at the IMF, but... Yeah. uh, Yeah. I'm always having to do rubber chicken dinners at these fundraisers and and give speeches, and then I can take out somebody. Like, I think this movie would be so much better if it was just about Max Moncito. Yes. Like, I want want to know more about Max Moncito's life. Like, this is... I guess eventually they make this movie, they make Day of the Jackal, which is about, like, you know, international Mm -hmm. assassin guy, and that's a fun movie, but, like... Anyway, I like seeing people be good at their jobs, and so I enjoyed everything, yeah, everything, and uh, you know all the details of him going to all the detail, the trouble he went to to hide his identity and all this stuff. Great stuff. Mm-hmm. In the the uh, the non canonical Bond movie uh, Never Say Never Again, which is five years after this, Von Sydow is Blofeld in mm-hmm. that one, mm-hmm. which you can you can certainly imagine that working out. A, a similarly eye obsessed. Yep movie like the guy has to have eye surgery to pass a retinal scan and whenever i whatever age i was when i saw this on tv like looking at that guy with his bandaged eye and then when he lifts his bandage off to try to test the retinal scanner like i was out whatever <laughs> yeah i i ran up to my bedroom that was that was gross yeah that was it's also in war of the worlds right or is that no it's minority report that's a whole mm-hmm. oh yeah the whole well he has to have the eye transplant minority oh man minority report is so good yep it really is uh so uh they have this great scene at the restaurant and deluca is describing the assassin gray hair brown eyes and he's staring at max Vancito with his and von Sydow is the blonde. villain in minority report i just sorry yeah sure yes. It all comes full circle. And those ice blue eyes. <laughs> uh, now, Sophia Loren, now the movie has decided they're going to use her as a page boy. She just go. the only reason she's in this scene is to go over and say, there's a man who keeps calling. You can't, there's no reason for her to be in this movie. Um, so I, I was t- trying to figure out how Sandra Bullock got top billing in um, <laughs> A Time to Kill. <laughs> and boy, yeah, Sophia Loren in this movie. Yeah, she passages messages. She makes coffee. Yeah. <laughs> she, yep. Yeah, and, and so... I, I thought initially that the only reason this, this scene occurred is to get 
Boncito and and Laurent and Sophie Loren on screen together because you know it's they're iconic and let's put them together. But I'm not and I'm not mad at that. Of course, they will have other scenes together later on. But that's what I figured this was doing. Like the this is the only right. thing I realized. So this to your point, she is supposed to have had off screen couplings with Patty McGee, Von yep. Sydow, yep. and Cassavetes. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Hmm. We'll get to that. Well. But we don't know that yet about Max von Sydow and her. Hmm. Yet. That's not that's not made clear yet. Uh, she And they're both trying. If you go back and watch that scene, they're both trying to pretend like nothing. there's nothing between them. Hmm. You know, um, for so, a moment there, I thought you were referring to Loren. Uh, like, oh, you said off screen. I thought you meant Loren herself. Like, this is this yeah. is good, great gossip. We've got to dig into oh, this. But, but, no, but, but, I, no. Hot goss. Um, but, yeah, I'd like, yeah, I, Sophie Loren, um, I don't know what she's doing here. Uh, so DeLuca gets instructions to go to St. Paul's. Hello. Major DeLuca? Yes? I understand you wish some information. Who is this? I may be able to help with the person you wish to find. Tell me who this is or I'm going to hang up. Tomorrow morning, go to confession at St. Paul's, the church by the hotel. First confessional on the right. Ask for Father Caston and confess your sins. Are you Father Caston? Be there at exactly nine o'clock. I'm not Catholic. Chris, can you help me out here? Can you just request a priest? Can you go like party of four? <laughs> no. Can we be seated in Father Caston's section, please? Is that the way that works? I don't think it is. You just kind of show up and you get. Uh, nope, nope, never. Into, I mean, I I know that you um, at least at St. Joseph's at my parish, you could do face to face confession Oof. if you which I and I sort of resented being offered the choice. I was like, would you like the traditional booth or would you like to face to face? I'm admitting to more shame, right? <laughs> or maybe I'm admitting that I don't feel quite as comfortable with my priest if I if I want yeah, the, right. the booth, you know? Like, just, why are you asking me? <laughs> don't ask me if I want pickles. Just always put pickles on it. And don't just uh, assume I always want to confess my sins in the booth. Okay, cool. Because there's only sometimes uh, an assassin on the other side of that screen. <laughs> but in this case, there is. The priest, of course, is the assassin who killed Patty. There's a chase through a church. They go up the bell tower. It's very Vertigo. It's very Batman 89. Uh, the only other film of which I'm aware, by the way, that has some some action business in a, in a confessional, by the way, is my beloved Hudson Hawk. No apologies. No apologies. Yeah, I'll have to see that film at some point in my life. Just get me to the five-tone, Tommy. I'm going to get a cappuccino soon. I'm going to strangle somebody. You still got a thing for those unmasculine European coffees. Yeah, what can I say? The priest assassin tries his singular move, his one move, the garroting, and it doesn't work. And then Sophia <laughs> Loren runs into the church. Oh, his for nickname no is the garroter. Yep. Um, and the only reason to her, for her to be in this scene is to have her react as if she thinks the dummy who is dressed very like <laughs> DeLuca is actually DeLuca. <laughs> And this is such a, st- like, I, this is such a stiff dummy. <laughs> this is such a... It's not great. This is not such great. a Monty Python <laughs> stuffy. Anyway. Um, Post-war scarcity. I guess. You, you tried to get in a, a convincing dummy in uh, 1945, Glenn. So uh, Shelley slash Weber slash Max Mancito, the assassin, is pouring over his files, Chris. It was right there. Uh-huh. This is what I f- figured you were going to do. Of uh, of the aide of Patton's aide and yeah, um, another colonel, another colonel, and so many Teresa, colonels. his mistress. Yep. This, these files are not written in any kind of code. Like if you were just like if you pick it up on a bus, you're going to be able to know everything that's happening. So the aide, right, of- and they have that dialogue at the beginning. She's like, "What would what would Patton say if she knew you had a German mistress?" And it's like, apparently, it's in his fucking file. Yeah, right. Um, so the aide and Teresa come home. Shelley is waiting for them. He kills the aide, then he kills Teresa. Seems again, there's a lot of faffing around between the killing the aide and killing Teresa. 
Um, he no, writes- but this is a, like uh, for a movie that that sort of uh, after the 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 great train gassing. Yep, the great train gassing. It does want for set pieces, mm-hmm. although I just praised the confessional thing, so so maybe not. But um, no, I think I think you're right. I think this movie has a lot more energy going in, into it than it does by the end. Yeah. Although I do, as I will get get to it, the actual assassination scene is, is quite quite something. Okay, yeah. But I, I mean, I thought this one was was pretty good, where she's telling, "Oh, you know, make me a drink, Lava," and then you like he's already dead in the bed. Mm-hmm. Like that was kind of cool. Um, he writes his name. He writes mm-hmm. uh, the name <laughs> Shelley on a notepad by the bed. This is, this is trying yes. to send people off on a wild goose chase. Uh huh. Smart. Works for that's me. it. That's that's the other part I love. I loved like they sort of like writes it and then removes the moves the paper, yep. but knowing that 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 the, the most basic you know detective in the world will trace <laughs> yes. trace over it. That's yeah. right. <laughs> detective Encyclopedia Brown would would get this one. <laughs> so when that exact thing happens in the last Boy Scout, bearing in mind that Shane Black got four million dollars to write this in a, hmm. in a screenplay, right? Yeah, yeah. Like uh, Bruce Willis's daughter like runs up to. Um, Damon Wayans and it's like, oh, this is how I knew how you were. And she holds up the notepad that she scratched the the pencil on and read the impression. And uh, he has a crack about Nancy Drew. But I love that in this movie, that discovery is uh, chalked up to CID forensics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Casavetti says, CID forensics, discover the location. And then he holds up the notepad. Yeah. <laughs> like, our forensics. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, it had to have already been like a mystery novel cliche at that yeah. point, right? I, think yes. I remember that in Agatha Christie or things. I like, know, but why would yeah. you just like? I, I mean, I could understand saying that sarcastically, you mm-hmm. know. But our best men, our best men, yes. <laughs> uncovered this clue. That no Turns one out, I, I, I know a guy who has a pencil, and he was able to decode. <laughs> yeah. Number two. Got a still got number two. Okay, so Weber uh, slash Shelley slash Valcito checks out a church that overlooks a DP camp. I needed to look this up uh, because I have a different definition of what DP stands for. This means a displaced persons camp uh, in Germany. Uh, mm. Some MPs find the actual Shelley, who Valcito has been disguised as this whole time, the whole time, mm. or they they threaten to get him because we need tension, tension, tension. So. DeLuca and Bruce Davidson's Father Mulcahy kind of dude race to the bar, but so do Vaughn and Eddie Herman. And Vaughn and Eddie Herman get there first. They kill Shelley. They kill the MPs. But when they are confronted with DeLuca and um, the colonel, they're really slow on the trigger (laughs) and allow DeLuca and Father Mulcahy to uh, take him out. Um, Yeah. And they just blew away these two MPs with no hesitation. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I mean, to be fair, like, the, the MP took out the other MP because it's... Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the escape plan is there because the, their cover is blown at that point, totally right? Is. I mean, I don't understand. I think they're just panicking, no. maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. These, these fucking... I mean, I think the, the reason these guys were MPs is, like, no one wanted them on the front line. Yeah, maybe. These are some Keystone MPs. <laughs> um, so we hear about an increased uh, security cordon around Patton, and yet... Uh, Max Moncito in another disguise can sneak into Patton's limo and fiddle with the window crank because he's got an American uniform. DeLuca is convinced that even though they're all dead, uh, he doesn't think it's over, doesn't add up. He doesn't believe that this Shelley guy, this writer, was the assassin. And then as he walks out the door, Sophia is there for no reason. <laughs> She's just there in Frankfurt, and the film is trying to give her a reason for existing. They, it's, it's, at this point, it tries to give her two. One, she recognized Weber in Frankfurt, and two, 
The reason she recognized him is because she shacked up with him before. It is a small theater war after all, man. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> it's just... She's it, like, I, I never forget a face. The only she, reason she didn't hook up with Vaughn probably is because he's a big uh, menopausal faggot. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, otherwise, the film would have tried to squeeze that in. Yeah. That's actually what MP stands for. <laughs> that doesn't, never mind. Menop- menopausal packet, yes. Um, uh, to, I, th- I think the, to the degree to which this film wants us to be invested in, in the love story between Loren and, and Cassavetes, it's, it's a, complete, <laughs> a complete failure because it's a really, it's a big who, who cares. And like, it's really lucky that it is Sophia Loren because otherwise it's just a complete who cares. Yeah, right. Absolutely. I mean, like, I, she's compelling. She's great. She's uh, yeah. she's amazing. And she yet, always is, though. It's like you know, you're just you're, that's your you know that's your that's what you're paying for, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. You didn't feel the emotion when he tells her, like, ah, I've been in chow lines that lasted longer than you waited. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was pretty rude, actually. I mean, yeah. a lot of, you know, <laughs> war. Um, a lot of, you got to forgive a lot in war. So at this point, because again, this is how how they are trying to make her integral to the plot. Because she tells him this, now DeLuca knows that it's Weber who's actually the assassin. Weber has convinced the commandant of this displaced persons camp by the church to block Patton's vehicle for reception. Who the hell arranged for this? You? No, sir. Well, then who did? I don't know, sir. Pull over, Sergeant. Yes, sir. Another damn deception. Um, so when Patton comes rolling along, he stops. He rolls down his window, but he can't roll it back up, which actually is, this is kind of cool, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually pretty cool. Uh, he can't roll it back up because uh, Vancito has uh, fixed it. This window's broken. Let's get out of here. Yes, sir. <laughs> Weber is up at the church, and then he heads to a spot where the car will be passing by, where he will take the shot, and he assembles the uh, the weapon. And Keith, I'll let you take it from here because you have some stuff to say about this assassination. Oh, it's just it's just the 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 faith he has in his own skill that everything will line up perfectly. And I'm still not exact, you know, uh, he has to like bribe the driver to crash at just the right moment. Right. I mean, that's the way it works. I mean, it was a little confusing, but, but, uh, but boy, you just got to admire it when a plan, when a plan comes together, even if that plan (laughs) involves killing a respected (laughs) U S general for really nefarious reasons. Yeah. 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 I mean, it plays out really cool. Um, I, the, the truck that they just kind of park in the middle of the uh, street so that Mm -hmm. when they turn the corner, they crash into it. Um, we do see Patton kind of hurtling forward in the in the back of the limo, um, and then we see him being taken out. And you know, it certainly seems like it it works. Um, I, I kind of get nostalgic for this era of conspiracy theories too, when they seemed kind of kind of harmless, or at least not you know capable of unraveling democracy by their very existence. Right. Uh, These you, are just you know. just a couple bad colonels who wanted to steal some gold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a sort of an era when, you know, Richard Linklater could put Alex Jones in a movie as like putting in some local kook that no one took seriously, right? Yeah, yeah, Versus yeah. Alex, Alex Jones becoming a player on the world stage somehow. It's, I yeah. don't know. Anyway, it was, it was, a, it was a more innocent time for, for reckless conspiracy theories. And I mean, Robert Vaughn gets um, twigged for, for trying to dispose of, of 1 million of their 250 million mm-hmm. kitty. Right. So, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess we don't need to know the plan, but, you know, in Die Hard, they're all going to fake their own deaths, right? That's how they're going to get away. Mm-hmm. You got to have a, if you're stealing that much money, you got to have an exit strategy. Because yep. uh, as, as Hans Gruber says, they're going to keep looking until they, they find you. Yep. Uh, so DeLuca shows up. It just doesn't add up. He's a uh, dog with a bone. He's not going to let this go. And he's going to pick up this. What's this? It's a bushing. Uh, it's not that. Uh, so um, yeah, it's amazing talks. that after all the all the Bruce Springsteen songs in my mind, the fact that there could still be an engine part that I don't. Yeah, I don't that's right. Don't is, uh, your <laughs> legs cross my. Um, so he talks to Sophia Loren, and she says, "I I I mean it now." And so she is as agreed. He, we 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 cut to actually the film doesn't tell us this. We have to uh, glean this, and I think this is a nice touch. Uh, Deluca shows up in the Alpine village of. Vegan Alp, um, and uh, that's because Sophia Loren has lured Von Cito there because Von mm-hmm. Cito wants to hook up with Sophia Loren once this is all over. Mm-hmm. She's hooking up with him again in an attempt to get Joe the proof he needs. She leaves him a note that sends him to an attache case in the attic of the villa they're staying in. Uh, Loren and Von Cito head off to cross-country ski, which is the worst right. thing in the world to do. And Find then- you a girl who will uh, hook up with the international assassin that you are hunting and then leave you a note <laughs> you yep. where she where she went <laughs> uh deluca sneaks into the villa he finds the weapon when they get back and they were going really far downhill and i don't understand how they got back up the hill if they're just cross-country skiing because they come down from a higher point to get yeah. back to their villa i did not see a ski lift there. did not see a ski lift there um so he comes out he brandishes the, the rifle thing and says, um, you know, it's over, which is yeah. the thing that they always say. And then Max Mancino tries to escape. DeLuca kills him and then proceeds to Monty Python fall down the mountain yeah. over a cliff. <laughs> and then, then explodes. And then explodes. Enormously. It's very funny. Uh, because it's And then the titles <laughs> explaining what happened. Right. Then the yeah. title freeze frame. Right. Yeah. I mean, I did like, again, having Von Sydow as he, you know, hearing like the, oh, as he hits each The Homer Simpson, yes. Right. Yeah, the, like the closing titles, we freeze frame on uh, the fact that the gold was never found. We freeze frame that the, the patent was killed. We freeze frame on um, the fact that Max von Sydow's character was given a noble thing. We freeze frame the last thing that's, that the, we end on is Sophia Loren in that kind of yarn hood thing mm-hmm. she's wearing. That's the final image of the film. Finely woven gold, Glenn. She walked out of there wearing the missing gold. All right. Now this is where we deliver our final verdict uh, on a scale of one to six. We'll start with the guest, I suppose. Or should we start with you, Chris? What do you think? I I can't remember how we do this. No. Guest goes first. Guest goes first. Okay. On a scale of one to six, how do you rate this film and why? Um, I mean, I'd say probably three. I mean, I had a good time watching it, even though it was the pacing was way off, and, yeah. and the, the 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 convolutions of the plot were kind of the point, I guess. But at some point, yeah. they were a little. You could probably even talk me into going four on this because I, I do, you know, I, I do miss this sort of seventies silliness. Um, but you know, it, it looked it looked good. It was it was the workmanlike direction was competent and workmanlike. But uh-huh. uh, it was it was it was sure. fun seeing John, the, John Huff was the. F- Gary Gray of, of his time. I sure, like yeah, it was uh, fun seeing the parade of the parade of stars. Um, yeah, it's true. And just, it's just like you know, it, it, look, it's Edward Herman. <laughs> There's this yeah. kind of that quality to it as well. Uh, it is not 
yeah, it doesn't hold together as, as an airtight thriller. I, I did very much enjoy, as we said before, the Maxman's, Max Moncito, uh, just the, 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 the skills, uh, uh, any scenes going, going about like sort of the details of his job, uh, I found gripping and silly at the same time. So yeah, I, I would, I would, uh, I did not mind this movie at all. It was, it was a pleasure to watch. If even if I can't say it was a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. All right, what's the final uh, number score again? Oh boy, can I go four? Yeah, sure you can. It's like right there in the middle, like a two yeah. and a half star movie. So I'll go, I'll go three. I'll, I'll, I'll be, mm-hmm. I'll be disciplined here. You know, I, I gave Braveheart a five. Yeah, you did. So. Uh, uh, mm. and, and there is a lot. There is there is more Magoon in that by volume. Sure. Um, but the the Magoon that we get here is so rich mm-hmm. and so nourishing, and speaks so much to his his weird hangups uh, about women and sex. Um, this this is a five for me, Glenn. This uh-huh. is uh, I, I I truly enjoyed this functional shrug of a <laughs> of, of a World War II dad flick conspiracy thriller. With some some fun performances and some production value that the director sometimes knows how to capture, mm-hmm. just it's they a just five. inched up the dummy budget just to scope. Yeah. Um, I have found making this podcast that I I need to separate in my head the movie itself from the Patrick McGowan of it all. So movies are two. At a point for the hilariously pointless gay panic. Um, which I just kind of reveled in. Um, add another point for rat-infested sewer. Yes. And add a half point for steel. <laughs> that gets you up to, what am I? It's four and a half? Four and a half. Four and a half points. Is it? Four and a half points for me. Okay. The fact that Edward Herman looks like Mitch McConnell in this, if you ever tried to imagine what Mitch McConnell... I see. Edward Herman always looks like Edward Herman to me. <laughs> I can't... I, I oh, can't but he's wearing those, those those round glasses. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I kept thinking he looked like Mitch yeah, McConnell. He always looks like... That's, he's, he's, round, he's round glasses guy. He's, well, he'd already played FDR at this point, too. Yeah, so he's coming in a little bit of that baggage if anyone was thinking about that at the time. Mm. I mean, well, that's and we and we hear we 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 hear Kennedy trash talking. Uh, no, not trash talk. He's he's trash talking Truman, I guess, right? Because mm-hmm. he's saying if Roosevelt were still alive, they wouldn't they wouldn't be giving me all this paperwork. Mm-hmm. Yep. So so I retract my he's point. Old blood and guts. He's a man of action. Right. All right, Chris. What's next? Boy, I don't know where we we're going. Next. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe we need to talk about the Simpsons episode. Yeah, let's do that. Featuring. Let's do that. Patty I'd be up for G. that. A heartbeat, yes. Uh huh. I could announce some some forthcoming Keith Phipps works of long form. Let's do that. Criticism. Oh gosh, the author of the forthcoming uh, era of Pena. <laughs> uh, I would tell you it doesn't doesn't rhyme. Doesn't, uh, hour of Tyrone Power doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, mm, it does rhyme. Uh, Gear of Kinnear. Oh God. Ooh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. A pinch of David Lynch, or a pinch of David Finch. <laughs> you know. Er. They were both involved with Return of the Jedi in different ways. Write this down, email them to me, because I'm, I'm half convinced the book sold because of the, of the, of the rhyming title. So if I can okay. get another rhyming title, and I, yeah. I don't have another book lined up yet, but if that's, if that's the secret, then uh, boy, I'll, I'll run with any of those. Okay. Well, I'm just telling you, you, you cannot have spell of Haley Atwell because that one's mine. <laughs> Uh, the day of Renee, Keith Phipps. Thank you so much for it's my for pleasure. Being. I cut off your. I didn't mean to step on your. What was your joke? Glenn? It was not What's a joke. A... It was a demi joke. Day of Renee. That's that's all I was going to say. Zellweger. <laughs> nothing rhymes with Zellweger. Or does it? It could have been Renee. No. Any number of Renees. It could have been Renee. Over, over you know the one from 
Aboriginal noir. Aboriginal. Yeah. Are we trying to say? Yeah. <laughs> Without a bit. Yeah. You can't. You can't hey, make a book uh, about Aboriginal. He's a good. Good guy. Good actor. But like, I mean, yeah. You could, he doesn't have the. Doesn't have the depth. Soup's on of uh, Cameron. That's that's gonna be that's gonna be mine. <laughs> I'm gonna time that for the release of uh, Avatar, The Way of Water. <laughs> Anyway, Keith Phipps, thank you so much for, for, for joining us. Again, my pleasure. Anytime. Everybody pick up, uh, may, you know, subscribe to The Reveal. Yes, I hardly, definitely. hardly recommend it. And, well, what's um, the URL for that, though? I think it is it something like thereveal.substack.com. I think it's something like uh, that. Subtle. Is there any particular retailer from which you would like to recommend that listeners buy their copies of Age of Cage? I always say buy from your local independent bookstore, but local independent bookstores don't always have it in stock. So if you're know, failing that, there's online retailers you can buy it from. You know, that's 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 fine. But if you're by chance here in D.C., you can go to Politics and Prose. You can go to Kramer's. You can go to East City Bookstore. Uh, I bet they all have copies of Age of Cage by our fantastic guest, Keith Phipps. Yeah. All right. Next up, The Simpsons episode. What it was? It was the the computer war tennis shoes. I don't remember. Is that the? I don't, know. I don't remember I think that. That's actually. I think I've seen that episode. Which I didn't realize that that was an actual title of a. I think Disney, Disney? Uh, Kurt Russell Disney, Disney film. It's Maybe a that, computer uh, war menace shoes. Is the oh, name of the episode. Good. There you go. Ah, yeah, that's much better. What uh, season? What episode? This is. Yeah, I am. I do. It is season twelve. Uh, episode six. Oh, okay. Episode six? And it was written by Schwartzwalder, but uh, that stopped necessarily being something to be excited about after a certain point. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> All right. So next well. time, the the Simpsons season twelve, episode six, the computer war menace shoes. Yes. Yeah, so we're going to continue our tradition of uh, covering things that are hard to get. You got to find a Simpsons episode somewhere, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that. Till then, be seeing you. Be seeing you. Generals and mages are hard, they're never too far from battlefields and glory. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemek. I wrote our silly little theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark on vocals and keyboards and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. Write the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at a degree absolute. Follow us on Twitter at not a number. Pod. Leave us a five-star review on Apple, Stitcher, Google, whatever podcatcher you use, along with your wildest prisoner or prisoner-adjacent take, or even just, you know, a timid prisoner or prisoner-adjacent take. Really, we'll, we'll, we'll take anything. We'll take a, a, a three-star take as long as you bundle it up with a five-star review. We're viable, and we will feature your wild or timid or, you know, mid-range take on a future episode. I'm recording this on my birthday during a week when I have never been prouder to have been born in the state of Kansas. My birthday wish is for my pod partner, my brother from another mother, pal for life, Glenn, to go to confession 
go see Father... I don't think it's Father Karras, but uh, whatever the, the priest assassin's name was, and confess his sins. Yeah, I've done what I've done. Jackal Zellweger.